ladies and gentlemen, when you look at this gorgeous couple, it's no wonder they're a household name all over the world, like bacon and eggs. Lockwood and Lama. Tell me confidentially, are these rumors true that wedding bells are soon to ring for you and Lena? Well, Lena and I have no statement to make at the present time. We're just good friends. You've come a long way together, Don. Won't you tell us how it all happened? Well, Lena and I have made a number of pictures together. Oh, no, no, Don. I want your story from the beginning. Dora, not in front of all these people. of your success is an inspiration to young people all over the world. Please. Well, Dora, I've had one motto which I've always lived by. Optical track. Always. Optical track. This was instilled in me by mom and dad. Today on Optical Track, with the Oscars just around the corner, we'll take a look at who got nominated, what should have been nominated, and who's most likely to get slapped this year. It's radio at 24 frames a second. Optical Track. Hey kids, welcome to another edition of Optical Track, your monthly film school, The Airwaves. Coming to you courtesy of the good folks at WOMR, the voice and spirit of Cape Cod, 92.1 FM in Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 Orleans, streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. I'm your host, Jacob Greenberg. Glad to be with you as always, and we've got plenty to talk about this month, uh, what with the Academy Awards just a mere three weeks away. But before we delve into this year's nominees, I want to take you back to the year that the winner of the very first Best Picture Award, or Outstanding Picture, as it was then called, was released. That year was 1927, and my reasons for bringing it up now are not merely Oscar-related. You see, on January 1st of this year, works created and copyrighted in 1927 entered the public domain as their copyright term of 95 years finally expired. That means they can be shared freely by anyone, either to enjoy in their own right or to use as inspiration and fodder for new works of art. Now, as you'd imagine, as we get into the uh, second quarter of the 20th century, the Jazz Age, modernism, uh, the works that are now available to all are getting pretty interesting. Uh, some of the books entering the public domain this year include To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, Now We Are Six by A.A. A. Milne, Thornton Wilder's The Bridge of San Luis Rey, as well as the second collection of stories by Ernest Hemingway and the final set of tales starring Sherlock Holmes. And uh, though the recordings themselves may take a few more years to enter the public domain, if you'd like to produce your own version of Putting on the Ritz, Old Man River, or Black and Tan Fantasy, you are free to do so, and you won't owe Irving Berlin, Jerome Kern, or Duke Ellington a single dime. But of course, here on Optical Track, we are most concerned with movies, and there is no question that 1927 was a banner year in the world of cinema. Uh, the grammar of the motion picture had reached an incredibly sophisticated state, not only in Hollywood, but at studios across Europe and in the Soviet Union as well. And even nearly a hundred years later, many of the films released in 1927 continue to have an indelible impact today. Uh, take the very first film to win Best Picture, the World War I drama Wings. It used some 300 aviators to stage its dogfight scenes that are echoed in this year's nominee, Top Gun Maverick. 
1927 was such a great year for films, there were actually two Best Picture winners. The second one, Sunrise, was named the Best Unique and Artistic Film of the Year, directed by the great German master F.W. Murnau, making his Hollywood debut. And I would say, no exaggeration, it's one of the three greatest films of all time. Back in Germany, the legendary Fritz Lang released his Metropolis, still the most influential science fiction film ever made, leaving its mark on everything from Blade Runner to Star Wars to Batman's Gotham City. And in England, a little-known director by the name of Alfred Hitchcock would become an international sensation with his third film, The Lodger, inspired by the Jack the Ripper killings. All these films, and so many more, released in 1927, elevated film from a medium primarily for entertainment to a bona fide art form. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You wanna hear but 1927 was also the year that the movies learned to talk. Just as cinema was discovering its true visual poetry, synchronized sound arrived, and the jazz singer's release marked, to use Joe Biden's favorite phrase, an inflection point in the history of cinema. For better or for worse, film would never be the same again. Now, many of the films released in 1927 just used the new technology to add music and sound effects. In fact, both Wings and Sunrise had synchronized scores which enhanced their groundbreaking visuals. But it was those few snippets of dialogue in The Jazz Singer that wowed audiences back in 1927. Modern audiences are rightly appalled by its use of blackface, uh, not to mention its very maudlin story. But hey, now that Warner Brothers copyright has elapsed, artists today are free to do what thou wilt with the footage and the soundtrack. Now, retooling old works of art is a tried and true tradition, but uh, the idea of the public domain is especially important when it comes to films, because preserving something written like a story or a novel, that's relatively easy. Same goes for music, whether you're talking about sheet music or a recording. These were all works that were designed to be mass-produced and sold directly to the public. But until VHS came along in the 70s, not too many people could say they owned a film. And movies need to be preserved, especially those early films shot on unstable and flammable nitrate film stock. Before the public could purchase films for home viewing, preservation was purely at the whim of the studios. And if they didn't see a market for a film, like, say, a silent movie in the age of talkies, there wasn't much incentive to maintain their archives. Take Wings. You would think that winning Best Picture might have been enough to convince Paramount it was worth preserving. Yeah, not so much. In fact, for decades, Wings was considered a lost film until a print turned up in Paris in 1992. And despite Metropolis's massive influence and the fact that it was an international sensation with screenings all over the world, until very recently, it only existed in heavily edited prints, missing a half to a full hour of its original runtime. When studios neglect their own properties, it's left to institutions like the UCLA Film Archive or the George Eastman House in Rochester, New York to pick up the slack. But their options are usually limited. Legally, they can't even digitize a decaying print if it's still under copyright. Now, it's estimated that between 75 and 90 percent, yes, 90 percent, of all silent films have now been lost to time. That's especially painful when you consider that, according to the Congressional Research Office, only about 2% of copyrights between 55 and 75 years old still have any significant commercial value. That means that literally thousands of films were simply left to rot in their cans instead of being preserved for film lovers and historians. In fact, there's a perfect example from the year 1927, probably the most sought-after lost film of all, London by Midnight, a vampire film directed by Todd Browning some four years before he would go on to make Dracula. 
and starring the Man of a Thousand Faces, Lon Chaney, in dual roles as both the monster at large and the man hunting him. Now, that's quite a horror pedigree and uh, plenty of film history, but it still wasn't enough to guarantee its preservation. Though archivists still hold out hope that a print will turn up in some obscure overseas archive someday, the last confirmed viewing of the film was back in the 1950s. And there's no telling how many more films have been lost since then, particularly in the last quarter century, because all of the films that just became public domain last month really should have done so a long, long time ago. Because 2019 was the first time in 20 years that any works entered the public domain in the U.S. after the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998 added another two decades of protection to copyrighted material. It's also known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act because it was heavily lobbied for by the film studios, but none more so than Disney when they realized that their most recognizable and valuable character was about to become fair game to anyone who wanted to use, reproduce, or parody him. Thanks to their efforts, we've still got one more year to go before Steamboat Willie enters the public domain. But at least while we wait, there are scores of fantastic films released in 1927 you can now watch for free. Most are already available on sites like YouTube and archive.org, but if they're not yet, they surely will be soon. I already mentioned Murnau's Sunrise, one of the greatest films of all time and an absolute must-see. But you can also check out Cecil B. DeMille's original King of Kings, or uh, It, the film that made Clara Bow famous as the It Girl. Abel Gantz's five-hour epic Napoleon was also released in 1927, absolutely groundbreaking as the very first film to use widescreen. Then there's Underworld, one of the very first gangster films, and uh, if you want to see the inspiration for 2002's Best Picture winner, the musical Chicago, the original 1927 silent version is now available for you to enjoy. And finally, even if London After Midnight is lost to time, you can still catch Todd Browning's other 1927 collaboration with Lon Chaney. It's called The Unknown, and it is one twisted masterpiece. All right, we're going to take a short break now, and when we come back, as promised, we are all about the Oscars. You're listening to Optical Track on WOMR, the voice and spirit of Cape Cod. Hi, this is Reed. And this is Felice. And we're the hosts of Cafe Classical. Heard every Monday afternoon from 1 to 4 o'clock. Here on WOMR 92.1 FM and WFMR 91.3 FM. The voice and spirit of Cape Cod. We invite you to join us for wonderful classical music programming every Monday afternoon. Now, ta te ti to tu. Ta te ti to tu. No, no, Miss Lamont, round tones, round tones. Now let me hear you read your line. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. Can't. 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 Optical track. Optical track.
We're back and you are listening to Optical Track on WOMR. I'm your host, as always, Jacob Greenberg. And with the Academy Awards a mere 20 days away, naturally people are starting to speculate on the various horse races, do a bit of handicapping. But I'll just tell you right up front, I don't really do Oscar predictions, mainly because I'm just so bad at them. Uh, part of the problem is that I'm not really, shall we say, of a mindset with your typical Oscar voter. Uh, most years I consider myself lucky if I have one film or a performer to root for among the nominees. If you caught our last episode where I picked my top 10 of 2022, you'll note uh, not a lot of Oscar contenders among them. But that's okay. Uh, for whatever reason, I still do love the Oscars. Even if they don't always get it perfect and uh, often get it maddeningly wrong, I still appreciate that one night a year is devoted to honoring the art of the cinema. Of course, you can't have the Oscars without some sort of controversy, and this year is no exception, uh, though I confess I find this one a little more perplexing than usual. It's not as egregious as, say, no people of color being nominated in any of the acting categories, nor is it as banal as who's hosting the ceremony or, um, you know, whether you can commit assault in front of 16 million people and get away with it. No, as far as I can tell, the issue this year is that a little-known actress in a film that almost nobody saw actually received the nomination. And uh, she achieved this impressive feat by, um, you know, earning praise from her fellow actors, which I thought was actually the whole point of the Academy Awards. But apparently, it's a no-no, because everybody knows true artistic talent is measured by how tall your billboard is on the Sunset Strip. Uh, the actress in this scenario is Andrea Riseborough, a well-regarded character actress who's had supporting roles in tons of films over the years, but she was offered the lead in a small film called To Leslie, playing an alcoholic mom seeking redemption. And I confess I have not seen the film, uh, along with millions of other people, but by all accounts of those who have, she's fantastic in the role. Uh, but since this small film didn't have the budget to wage even a modest Oscar campaign against the resources of the studios, they resorted to... Um, Encouraging fellow thespians to watch it and then sing its praises on social media. I don't know, maybe Gwyneth Paltrow hosted a screening at her house? Something like that. I don't know. Honestly, the more I read about it, the less sure I was actually of what sin had been committed against the gods of Hollywood marketing. But uh, in the end, the Academy investigated the viral campaign and decided in their infinite benevolence and wisdom to let her keep the nomination. Really? Like they were considering denominating her? I mean, Hollywood really is high school on steroids. In the race for best actor, I know Austin Butler has already picked up a couple of statues for Elvis, and there's also a lot of love for Brendan Fraser with his turn in The Whale, seen by many as a major comeback. But if they were giving out the award for a body of work in a single year, then the winner would have to be, hands down, Colin Farrell. I mean, I haven't seen too much written or reported about this, but he had an unbelievably killer year in 2022 for the sheer number of films he tackled, the scope of roles and genres, and of course for his individual performances. I mean, he, he started off in one of the year's quietest films, After Yang, then he went completely over the top under a mountain of prosthetics as the Penguin in Batman, he went cave diving as one of the rescuers in Ron Howard's 13 Lives, and finally played the well-meaning village idiot in The Banshees of Inna Sharon, the film that earned him his nomination and may well net him an Oscar. Now that list of films would be a really impressive resume for most actors, but apparently it's just a year in the life for Colin Farrell. I'll be honest, uh, I'm someone who kind of wrote him off at the start of his career, but I think Hollywood just didn't know what to do with him. It's great to see that he's found his path, and uh, 
I look forward to all nine or ten of the films he's probably got coming out next year. I will say, though, his performance notwithstanding, uh, Banshees was my least favorite of the films he starred in in 2022. I know it's a strong Oscar contender, uh, won Best Comedy at the Golden Globes, took home the Best British Film just last night at the BAFTAs, but I feel like it suffered from uh, the third act syndrome that afflicts so many films, including several that are nominated for Best Picture this year. Uh, you've painted your characters into a corner, don't know where to take the drama, amp up the crazy. And Tar was guilty of that, too. It was a moody, fairly successful character study until the last act, when rather than playing out the logical consequences of the main character's actions, writer-director Todd Field just had her throw a nutty. Uh, interestingly, though, uh, another Best Picture nominee, Triangle of Sadness, had the exact opposite problem. Its first two acts were sort of funny, but not very subtle social satire, and... By not very subtle, I mean uh, a lot of loathsome rich people getting violently and graphically seasick. Not spoiling anything, it was right there in the posters. But then in the third act, Triangle of Sadness totally flips the script, shifting its emphasis to some previously minor characters, and suddenly it's totally engrossing and very funny. Uh, I wish writer-director Ruben Ostland had expanded his third chapter and just made that the focus of the entire film. If so, I think it would have definitely made my top ten list. But in the end, there was only one overlap between my top 10 and the 10 films nominated by the Academy for Best Picture, and that was Everything Everywhere All at Once, which I did indeed pick as my favorite film of the year. It scored the most Oscar nominations, a whopping 11, and Michelle Yeoh and Kihei Kwan both scored statues at this year's Golden Globes, and deservedly so. The film has picked up a raft of other awards for its screenplay and its directing duo, known together as The Daniels, but so far, a Best Picture award at one of the major ceremonies has proved elusive. In fact, it lost out again just last night across the pond at Britain's answer to the Oscars, the BAFTAs. The film that cleaned up there was, surprisingly, All Quiet on the Western Front, earning 14 nominations and winning in seven categories, including Best Picture, Best Film Not in the English Language, Adapted Screenplay, Director, Cinematography, Score, and Sound. Now, that's quite a sweep in categories both creative and technical. Is it going to move the needle in its direction next month at the Oscars? I don't know. I can't help feeling that the fact that another film, also based on the famed Eric Maria Remarque novel, won Best Picture way back in 1930, and that might not play in its favor. That and the fact that, although it was quite well done, I'm not sure it really added anything new to the World War I filmography, especially so soon after Sam Mendes' 1917. By the way, while we're on the subject of film adaptations, I am really confused about something regarding the adapted screenplay category. And I'm serious about this. If you have any insight, please feel free to email me at opticaltrack@womr.org and explain this to me. But aren't these supposed to be films adapted from, like, a novel, short story, a play? Well, two of the nominees this year don't actually seem to be adapted from anything. They're just sequels. I'm talking about Glass Onion, Ryan Johnson's follow-up to Knives Out, and Top Gun Maverick. I mean, you wouldn't say The Empire Strikes Back is an adaptation of Star Wars, would you? I mean, if the Academy is saying it's going to be a stickler for the rules regarding nominations, they might want to offer a bit of clarification on this one. Anyway, given that uh, another film named All Quiet on the Western Front has already been named the best picture, albeit way back in 1930, it does kind of feel like maybe the slot could have gone to something a bit more original. Uh, I know fans of Black Panther were hoping its sequel, Wakanda Forever, might have scored another Best Picture nod for Marvel Studios, 
And Damien Chazelle's second film in Hollywood, Babylon, uh, fizzled at the box office and only received a few nods for its design and score. On the other hand, The Woman King received stellar reviews and no lack of nominations for other awards, so it's a bit of a head-scratcher that it was completely shut out by the Academy. But hands down, the most egregious snub this year, the one that I cannot wrap my mind around, and I know I'm not alone, is the lack of a single nomination for Jordan Peele's Nope. I mean, for sheer cinematic chutzpah. Say that five times fast. Uh, there were too many films last year that even came close. It was a box office success. According to Metacritic, it was the fifth best-reviewed film of 2022. And it's a film that people continue to talk about, trying to unpack its many, many mysteries. I know I already ranted about this last episode when I put it on my top 10 list, so I won't keep beating a dead horse, but it's a little maddening when a film this daring succeeds both commercially and critically, and the Academy's response is... Now, when you have to whittle down a field of nearly 100 submissions to just five final nominees, you're bound to have both some surprising inclusions and shocking omissions, especially when you consider that foreign language films are often the hardest to actually see. So the international film category is often the source of some controversy, if not actual outrage, but uh, a couple of films that were heavily favored to make the cut this year didn't, albeit for very different reasons. Korean director Park Chan-wook first gained international recognition with his 2003 revenge film Old Boy, although he might be best known now for his 2016 period piece The Handmaiden. His latest film, Decision to Leave, may not quite reach the dizzying heights of those films, despite a murder set on a mountaintop, but as thrillers go, it's pretty remarkable, earning Park the Best Director Award at last year's con. At least it did make the 15-film shortlist for the Oscars, but uh, it got bumped for the final cut. But the film that everyone expected to see among the Best International nominees, in fact, there was talk of it receiving a Best Picture nod as well, was the Indian film RRR, the most expensive Indian film ever made and the third highest grossing. It wasn't just a success, but a sensation in its native country. Um, personally, I can't say I was a huge fan, but I did almost admire it for being so defiantly unsubtle. Uh, anyway, it clearly did make an impression on a lot of Western audiences, enough, in fact, to earn it two Golden Globe nominations, one for Best Foreign Language Film and another for Best Original Song, which it won. Uh, so it may come as a surprise that uh, the reason RRR didn't receive a Best International Film nomination at the Oscars is it wasn't submitted. Uh, each country is allowed one entry in the category, and this year the Film Federation of India chose an autobiographical drama called The Last Film Show, which actually sounds kind of like India's answer to the Fablemans. Uh, like Decision to Leave, that film did make the shortlist, but not the final five. So... Anyway, RRR will have to be satisfied with its single Oscar nod for the song Natu Natu, which I have to say was a pretty awesome scene, uh, definitely the highlight of the movie, and I'm guessing its live performance on March 12th is going to be one of the highlights of this year's Oscars. I've had enough of this nonsense! You two, out! So, will Everything Everywhere All at Once finally get to take home a top prize? Or will it get nudged out by Banshees or Fableman? Or maybe a dark horse will pull ahead in the home stretch, uh, like 2021's Coda. We will find out in just under three weeks, and I'm sure, as always, I will have a few things to say about the results on our next episode. 
But right now we've got just enough time for the Optical Track Film Calendar, our roundup of all the movies playing at our great independent cinemas here on the Outer Cape. But we'll start out with a film that you can catch for free right here at our studios later this week. The WOMR film series continues on Real Film every Thursday evening at 7.30 p.m. through March. The classic films are shown at the schoolhouse in the Davis space, 494 Commercial Street here in Provincetown, and hosted by myself, Brad Moore. The films are free to the public, drinks will be available, and donations are gratefully accepted. Showing February 23rd, Manhandle from 1924, directed by Alan Dwan and starring Gloria Swanson and featuring Fred McGee on keyboard. Again, that's this Thursday at 7.30 p.m. right here at the WOMR Studios in Provincetown. Don't miss a rare opportunity to see a slice of film history with live musical accompaniment. The Water's Edge Cinema in Provincetown is giving you a chance to catch some of the hardest-to-see Oscar nominees by presenting three programs of Oscar-nominated short films. You can choose from live-action, documentary, or animated shorts. Or if you're looking for feature-length fare, you can check out the new Australian film Of an Age. It's about a young man who falls for his friend's older brother. And The Water's Edge is also hosting a one-time screening tomorrow night, that's Tuesday, of Adam's Family Values as part of their Two Queens and a Movie series. The film starts at 7.30, but cocktails are at 7. For more information, go to provincetownfilm.org. At the Wellfleet Cinemas, Phase 5 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe kicks off with Ant-Man and the Wasp, Mania, And Liam Neeson plays Raymond Chandler's famed detective in Marlowe. 80 for Brady features three Oscar winners and a four-time Emmy winner swooning over the winningest quarterback in NFL history. And the winner of the Oscar for Best Picture of 1997, Titanic, has been revived again, now in 3D. The Wolfleet Cinemas also have a couple of films running as matinees all week long. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, nominated for Best Animated Feature, runs daily at 12.45. And uh, if you've ever wanted to wake up to Billy Bob Thornton as a drug kingpin, you can catch him in Devil's Peak daily at 10 a.m. For all the showtimes and tickets, go to wellfleetcinemas.com. The Chattamorphium is also showing 80 for Brady, along with two films uh, with dueling Best Actor nominations, both of which feature dads struggling to reconnect with their daughters. You can see Paul Mescal in the heartbreaking film After Sun, and see why Brendan Fraser got an eight-minute standing ovation for his performance in The Whale. The main character in the Polish film E.O. is a donkey, so uh, no Best Actor nod, but the film is up for Best International Film, and I can say it is well worth checking out. So... Go to chathamorphium.org for all the details. And it looks like the Cape Cinema in Dennis will be closed for maintenance all this week, but they're scheduled to reopen on February 24th with the biopic Emily, about the Bronte sister, followed on the 25th by a screening of one of the most visceral cinematic experiences of all time. That's Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, definitely one to see on the big screen. Go to capecinema.com for more information. And folks, that's going to do it for this edition of Optical Track. I hope you'll join me again next month on Monday, March 20th. We can dissect the Oscar results, and uh, I'm sure we'll have much more to chat about, cinematically speaking. Until then, I'm your host, Jacob Greenberg. Have a happy President's Day, and uh, enjoy the Academy Awards on the 12th.
les retours.